And let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Jude, studying the book of Jude here on Sunday mornings. Jude is the uh, next to last book in the Bible. If the Bible's new to you, right next to the book of Revelation. And uh, while you're finding your place there, if you can also turn a little bit to the left in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. And we'll read a couple passages uh, to prepare for our time this morning. While we're doing that, Sunday night we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently studying the Gospel according to Luke. We'll do that at 6 o'clock tonight. Each of you are invited. So, uh, Romans chapter 6, and then the book of Jude. We'll start in the book of Jude. I'll read verses 3 and 4. We'll only look at verse 4 as kind of a part one to these two verses this morning. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 6, we'll actually go into Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And so you might hold both those places as we uh, study uh, this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us as we have even sung an unfailing love, such a faithful love, and, and to be able to live life day in and day out, year in and year out, and never wonder about your love for us, what a security it produces within our lives, what health within our spirit and our hearts and our minds, and we thank you for your love. We pray as we turn to your word that you would use it this morning to uh, feed us, to strengthen us, and also, Lord, to sanctify us. And we ask for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Jude gave his intention for uh, writing this letter at the beginning here of, of verse 3. He had hoped to write a more general letter that was centered upon as he puts it, the subject of our common salvation as Christians. And what a joyous letter he had in mind to just sit down and put into print and, and to celebrate with one another by virtue of that way, to celebrate how great it is to be saved, what a Savior that we have, how wonderful forgiveness is, what we've been saved out of, what we've been saved into. And to talk about salvation for the Christian is uh, is a hundred percent a celebration for us. And, uh, but news had come to him that was so alarming that he abandoned uh, that very, very majestic theme that he had intended to uh, camp on uh, in order to address 
the news instead, and uh, which I think in and of itself tells us how dangerous he considered the doctrine that he was addressing, that he would abandon what it was that he had intended to, uh, to write in order to address what he does. The problem and the crisis that he's addressing is plainly given to us in verse 4. He tells us that certain men had crept in uh, with the intent of influencing Christianity in a particular uh, direction, in an ungodly direction, he declares. Uh, and the influence that they were trying to exert uh, really uh, centered upon two things. First of all, as he puts it, these false teachers, they turn the grace of God into lewdness. And so they were teaching uh, and, and, uh, and their teaching perverted the true meaning of grace. And what they were teaching was that you can live any way you want as a Christian, engage in any, all of the sin that you want to, and God's grace will cover it. Uh, Jude uses the word lewdness, which is a very, very strong word, both in English uh, and in the original language in, in the Greek. It speaks specifically of behavior completely lacking in moral restraint and extreme immorality. And it certainly includes uh, and emphasizes uh, sexual immorality, but it also speaks of anything and uh, everything that we would consider to be immoral uh, activity. And so they were saying you can practice and obey every sinful desire of your flesh as a Christian without the slightest concern uh, about God's judgment or about God's chastening in your life in any way. There are no uh, implications to this. There are no consequences to it at all. I mean, God doesn't take all of those things, all of those passages and chapters in His Bible that talk about holiness seriously. I mean, these are the kind of things that God has to say, but surely He doesn't expect us as human beings to, to then take it as seriously uh, as He takes it. And so they abuse grace in minimizing the importance of righteousness, the importance of holiness, uh, the importance of sanctification and judgment. And so they denied, and this kind of person uh, exists uh, prominently today, uh, and, and they deny as well uh, the moral demands of Christianity. The second thing that they were uh, doing here in terms of the, uh, the two things that, that uh, were influencing them in this direction uh, it, it is what Jude went on to say is that they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus. And you notice he, he uses the word uh, Lord twice uh, in a very uh, compressed uh, area. He uh, applies Lord to God the Father. He applies Lord uh, to uh, Jesus Himself. He uses two different Greek words to, uh, for both of those Lords. And he's saying that uh, <clears throat> the Greek word that is, he, is used for uh, God the Father refers to one who uh, possesses supreme authority within our lives, one who is the master of our life. The Greek word that he uses for Lord for Jesus is kurios, and it means Lord, it means master, it means owner. 
And so he's saying that this is to be the Christian's attitude toward God the Father, toward uh, Jesus himself, that they possess supreme authority uh, within our lives, over our lives, by virtue of us uh, being Christians. They are uh, our master, they are uh, uh, our Lord, and it is this reverence and respect for God, uh, His, uh, God's position in the life of a Christian, His commandments, His Word, uh, that these false teachers were denying and, uh, and declaring all of it to be unnecessary. They denied the necessity of Jesus' lordship in the life uh, of a Christian. They taught that you could know Him as Savior uh, and uh, not as Lord, that you needed to take His claim and His call to make Him Savior seriously, but you, didn't need, you don't need to take seriously His call to also make Him our Master and uh, our Lord. Now, to give you a, a little further understanding uh, concerning uh, how deeply this particular false doctrine, this particular false uh, teaching and heresy, this uh, uh, ungodly understanding of Christianity has uh, infiltrated the thinking and the beliefs of those who uh, call themselves Christians today. Allow me to cite uh, to you the most recent polling from the Pew Research uh, polling group dated uh, August 31st, 2020 on this subject. So it's very current as far as polling goes. When those who self-identified as Christians were asked whether sex between unmarried adults uh, in a committed relationship, whether that is acceptable, uh, 32% said it's never acceptable. 10% said it's rarely acceptable. 24% said it's sometimes acceptable, and 33% said it is never wrong. In other words, what you have here uh, in the United States of America, well over half of the Christians polled declared that sex outside of marriage between uh, unmarried committed couples, what the Bible plainly forbids and calls fornication, uh, is sometimes or always acceptable. That is half, according to this poll. Uh, when uh, people were asked whether sex between unmarried adults who are not in a committed relationship, in other words, they're engaging in hookups or they're engaging in casual sex or open relationships, asked whether that was wrong among uh, self-identifying Christians. Uh, 33% said it's never acceptable. 17% said it's rarely acceptable. 32% said it's sometimes acceptable. And 18% said it's always acceptable. So here you have fully half of those who self-identify as Christians who consider casual sex to be either sometimes or always acceptable, and only one-third hold to the biblical view that sex is something that is to be reserved for the commitment of marriage and to be reserved for the marriage bed. Well, <clears throat> Then things get even uh, uh, more shocking, if that's possible. 
concerning uh, regular church attenders, that speaks of anyone who attends church at least uh, once a month, uh, in Protestant evangelical churches, that would be a church like this, uh, uh, and uh, they were asked concerning premarital sex uh, 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 among adults in a committed relationship, 41% said it's never acceptable, 11% said it's rarely acceptable, 26% said it's sometimes acceptable, and 21% said it's always acceptable. You have virtually half who consider something that's plainly forbidden in the Word of God, uh, who consider this sometimes or always acceptable. Now, this is not referring to the percentage uh, uh, of people who declared that this was their own personal life experience, but the percentage of Protestant, evangelical, regular church attenders who have settled into this as a position in their life concerning Christianity as their held belief about a subject that the Bible is very, very clear on, that the sexual relationship is to be reserved for marriage. And who, uh, like those that Jude is warning about here, have openly and publicly rejected the moral demands of Christianity. And so statistics like that uh, are alarming. People wonder why pastors repeat themselves so much or why the Bible repeats itself so much on these uh, and other issues. It's because there's always this kind of battle going on uh, even among, uh, uh, among Christians. And so it's good for us just to search our own hearts related to those questions in terms of how we would answer them honestly in our heart, and then to see where we fit and what it is that uh, Jude is addressing here uh, in his little uh, epistle. And so uh, we see in looking just, it just simply one issue, uh, the subject of sexual immorality, the extent to which the alarming concerns that caused Jude to cease to write the letter he wanted to write uh, in the early church to begin with, and, and then <clears throat> forced him to write this letter, how uh, those same alarming issues exist at an alarming level within professing Christianity today in the United States of America. So we see how contemporary the letter is. We see how necessary uh, the letter is. Now, I ask myself, when I, when I read statistics like this and I see what it is that Jude is, is writing here, uh, we ask ourselves, what's at the core of uh, some so complete uh, a misunderstanding of Christianity? And uh, in those who advance these kind of ideas as somehow being an improvement upon Christianity, uh, in, in the same way. And then those who then believe people who teach this and, and advocate this. And, uh, and other than the world, the flesh, and the devil, very powerful, unholy trinity, I can think of at least two 
uh, things behind this kind of false teaching and uh, this complete misunderstanding of Christianity. I think that uh, first, and, and, and Jude hints at it here in the letter, he more, more than hints at it, uh, but these kind of people, they possess a very, very incomplete and a dangerously incomplete understanding of the grace of God. And, and in order for me to uh, help myself and help you understand what I mean by this, uh, let's turn back there now to Romans chapter 6 and uh, to see what Paul has to say uh, related to that there because he addresses the identical uh, situation that we're talking about. Now, in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, <clears throat> excuse me, he devotes fully three chapters of that book, chapters 6, 7, and 8, to the subject of sanctification in the life of a Christian, in which he declared that God's plan of salvation not only provides us with the forgiveness of sins past, and it not only provides us uh, with the confidence and the hope of heaven in the future, but that it, it also with the power to live a holy life now, a godly life now, freedom from the power uh, of sin, a victorious Christian life, which God then commands us to do. Now, in, in fact, when you look at uh, Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, it's fascinating to see that here you have the Apostle Paul uh, in his own way, uh, it, 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 it running headlong into what uh, Jude is addressing in, in his letter. And so he meets this te uh, teaching where he posed a, a question in uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and then he answered his own question. And so he says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, which is what was uh, Judas addressing. And then he answers his own question, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, the context of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, is found in the two previous verses. You remember there were no chapters and verses uh, when the, these letters were first written. And I'm thankful for them, but those two verses uh, are uh, found there in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, where Paul wrote about the superiority of Christianity uh, to the law of Moses. And you notice in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul writes, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And Paul seems to immediately realize that upon writing that, while that statement is absolutely true, wonderfully true, that it had the potential now to be tragically um, misunderstood, that someone might read it and then conclude concerning the Christian life, well, there's no need to change our lives as Christians 
repent of our sins or to be concerned about sanctification or holiness at all because the more we sin, Paul says, the more opportunity we give to God uh, to uh, forgive us and display His grace in our lives. And for people to then conclude that not only is a sin-filled life as a Christian not a bad thing, but it's actually a good thing. It's good advertising for Christianity, where you can say, hey, hey everyone, look at my life dominated uh, <clears throat> by sin as a Christian, and look at how cool and accepting and how uh, gracious God is. Don't you want to know Him and follow Him uh, as well? But Paul very emphatically cuts that argument uh, out uh, at the knees, and he doesn't even wait but a verse or two before he does it there. And, uh, <clears throat> and that kind of a concept of Christianity, and he says it certainly is not what Christianity is. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. But I also want you to notice something that's, I think, the most uh, overlooked verse in the entire progression uh, there in Romans here, and that is uh, in chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul writes and he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign, uh, might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what he's communicating in that powerful phrase there, grace might reign through righteousness, is that as Christians, we're never to think about the forgiveness of our sins, as wonderful as that is, as being the sole expression of God's grace in our lives. But we are to also understand that God's grace in our lives is also expressed in giving us the power to be able to live a life free from the power of sin. And I think that's very important for us to understand that God's grace is multifaceted. It has two main components. It has the component of forgiveness for which we are very thankful, but it also has, takes the form of giving us the ability to live the Christian life that's described in the Scriptures, for which we are also uh, very thankful. But grace isn't just this one thing. And I would uh, <clears throat> contend that uh, the average Christian, when we think about God's grace, we think of it almost solely in the context of His forgiveness. And we never carry it over into this other side of the Christian life. And yet, it is just as much an expression uh, of uh, the grace of God. The power to live a sanctified, holy Christian uh, life. And so Paul is telling us that the Christian life uh, that is described uh, in verse 1 
that a, a Christian uh, thinks, I am saved, I'm forgiven, I'm on my way to heaven, I have no real concern for changing my ways or repenting of my sin, living a changed life, a victorious Christian life. Paul says that's not Christianity at all. It's a complete misunderstanding of Christianity and of, of God's grace. And if a Christian is living a life of deliberate sin, habitual sin, Paul wants them and us to know that this is unacceptable. It is not what God uh, intends the Christian life to be. It's really such an affront to the cross uh, of Jesus Himself to think that Jesus came into this world in His incarnation. He lived 33 uh, years uh, on this earth uh, to die on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for our sins and rise again from the dead on the third day in order to provide us with the kind of Christianity that these false teachers were advocating. It is, it's an affront to the sacrifice that Jesus uh, made and uh, the sacrifice that He made to provide us with the real salvation that He did. The entire New Testament teaches that no one can be truly born again and fail to experience a change in our lives uh, toward holiness. That it is impossible for God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit, He is the Holy Spirit, to come into a human life and for uh, in, in a spiritual birth, and for our lives to remain exactly as they were uh, before uh, that uh, experience, that change is going to occur, and that this change will be one of the evidences of our spiritual birth and of the Holy Spirit's presence within our life. Now, Jesus taught in the closing portion of His Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits, <clears throat> the kind of life they live. Uh, uh, do men gather grapes from the bushes or figs from thistles? Uh, even so, every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear uh, bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And uh, every good tree, uh, the, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not their words, but the life they live. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And, and so all of the words, all of the everything is undone and, and a false confidence in salvation that they have based upon a life that is marked by the practice of lawlessness. And, uh, and Jesus condemns anyone who claims to represent Him 
uh, or Christianity who is deliberately, and I say deliberately, uh, living a lifestyle of sin. Jesus is not condemning the Christian who struggles with sin. We all struggle with sin. We deal with temptation. It's a part of, uh, of life on our, our pilgrimage. It is condemning the person who claims to be a Christian, and yet their life is characterized by willful, deliberate, open disobedience to God's Word. And God calls that kind of faith. It is a faith of sorts. It's useless, but it is a faith of of sorts. God uh, calls that kind of faith a dead faith. And uh, James wrote about it in his epistle, chapter 2. I'll read it for you. He said, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If somebody will say, You have faith and I have works, uh, James answers, Show me your faith. Without your works, I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the dem- devils uh, believe and tremble. But I do uh, want you to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead. And the point that James is making uh, here is not that we're saved by our works, but that a true saving faith in Jesus Christ will have works and obedience uh, following within our lives. And so the person who claims to be a Christian and yet lives a continual, a sin of continual, uh, deliberate, willful uh, rebellion against God needs to look very, very carefully at their life because God says such a person is trusting in a uh, dead uh, faith. And this is exactly what Jude was addressing in his letter. And this is a very real, and it is a very, very dangerous self-deception. I read you the statistics concerning one issue of Christianity. The deception is powerful, and it's very, very widespread. And uh, uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He says... <clears throat> Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Paul recognizes the power of the deception. He said, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because of those individual sins, because they practice those individual sins, uh, not at all. It is because a life that is deliberately characterized by those sins or any sins uh, reveals that that life was never ever born again uh, to begin with. And that's why Paul writes to the church at Corinth and And he speaks of the change that the spiritual birth produced uh, within the believers in that city. And the United States of America and the world today has no corner on wickedness. I mean, uh, Corinth was a a center for wickedness. 
and he wrote to the church there, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, Again, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to sin as a Christian. It doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not going to fall short in my life. We're talking about an abandonment to uh, a, a, a sin without, without care. And so to go forward in a church service at the age of 8 or the age of 18 or the age of 28 and pray some particular prayer and then nothing at all happens in terms of change uh, in my life at all, the Holy Spirit says through James, don't trust in that. He's very, very candid that that is a dead faith, and that's a lot worse than a dead battery. You don't want to have uh, a dead faith. And all of this then brings us uh, to the second great ignorance that lies at the core of this complete misunderstanding of, of this particular group of false teachers in terms of Christianity and as they're here advancing their version of Christianity, which feels completely free to ignore the moral implications of being a Christian. The second thing is that with a person who adheres to this kind of thinking and belief and advances it, it is a complete ignorance of the very first word of Jesus' public ministry. And the very first word of Jesus' public ministry, he began his entire public ministry with this word, and it was the word repent. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think that very often, certainly among the world, people that don't know Christ, but even in the minds of a a lot of uh, Christians, the idea that somehow the word repent is uh, viewed almost entirely as a negative kind of thing that God uh, forces upon us as Christians and we uh, grudgingly fall into line as a result. But when Jesus called upon mankind to repent, There isn't any sense at all that he views it as some terrible thing or some miserable thing that he's calling human beings uh, to do. Instead, he considers it to be a part of God's good news to mankind. And, uh, And he proclaims it as a wonderful thing, an exciting thing. He proclaims it as if he is offering mankind a tremendous blessing and a tremendous privilege in terms of the opportunity uh, to repent. And of course, he is. Now, what is repentance? Very simply, it means to have a change of mind. That's what the word means, to have a change of mind. It is to change my mind about the direction that I'm going in life. It is to change my mind about the life that I'm living. It's to change my life about uh, sin. It is to, to change my mind about the sin that I practice in my life. And true repentance 
a true change of mind will always produce a change of direction in my life. I will do a U-turn. I will move in the opposite direction of where my sin was leading me uh, in life, turning away from uh, uh, the world, the flesh, the devil, their ways, and turning to God. Every single one of us in this room are as fallen descendants of Adam and Eve. We were born into this world separated from God. We were born into this world uh, walking down a path that was put before us that was leading us away from Him. And as a result, repentance, a U-turn, is needed now to cease going in that direction and then to now turn to God by putting my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior, as my Lord. And that salvation is the very first and foremost expression of repentance. I'm turning from my own way. I'm turning to God. The first thing I'm going to do is an expression of my repentance is put my faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation uh, of my soul as God has offered to me. But repentance doesn't end there for us as Christians. Repentance also includes as an act of my will in the power of the Holy Spirit choosing to now go in God's direction for my life as opposed to my own direction in my life, obeying what He calls me to do rather than obeying what my body tells me to do or my flesh uh, tells me to do. It means choosing to uh, now live a life as God's Word instructs me as opposed to uh, doing my own thing. And uh, I determine to turn away from the practice of sin within my life and so forth. This is where Repentance works in our life both in salvation and then beyond salvation. And far from Jesus' call upon us to repent being something that is viewed as some awful, awful, horrible thing by uh, people, for the person who's sick of the guilt of their sin They're sick of the meaninglessness of life, the purposelessness of uh, uh, life uh, apart from uh, God, the bondage to sin. They're tired of their emptiness, tired of their loneliness. They're tired of their fear and their death, uh, fear of death. The opportunity to repent, to turn from the kingdom that is this world and, uh, and then to enter into the kingdom of God is, and uh, one, a kingdom that is sovereignly governed by a loving and a righteous God, that is wonderful news to such a person. And when we put our faith in Jesus for salvation, it's with the understanding that we are also making Him our Lord. And then we are for the remainder of our Christian life to repent of anything that is inconsistent with His Lordship, with His position uh, within our lives. And nobody enters the kingdom of God without repentance. And to teach that we can as these false teachers were teaching 
is a folly, it's a deception, and it's a dangerous uh, one. And it would make Jesus' call to repent and enter into the kingdom of God completely meaningless. What they were advocating, they were advocating uh, in the very face of Jesus' teaching, the very face uh, of His proclamation of the gospel. There are many other passages which speak to this very thing. Let me just give you two or three here. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And here we see this intertwining between salvation and, uh, and the necessity of, of repentance. And so here, as is, is Peter says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, he uses repentance as an indication of faith for salvation. Uh, he uses it interchangeably with salvation. He means salvation, and he uses the word repentance. That's how uh, uh, inextricably intertwined repentance and salvation uh, are. In Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 20, when Paul uh, was speaking to the Ephesian elders, he said, "'How I kept back nothing that was helpful.'" but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jesus and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He puts them, uh, all, both of them bound together. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. And uh, when uh, Peter brings his report of the salvation of the Gentiles, uh, to the uh, leadership, Christian leadership uh, there in Jerusalem. And when they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, uh, then God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And uh, they used the term repentance to life uh, uh, to communicate salvation. That's how prominent uh, and important and vital the reality of repentance is to salvation and to the Christian life. Again, Jesus using the same language uh, declared in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, uh, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And he's speaking of salvation. Luke chapter 15 uh, verse 10, Jesus again, likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the idea is that they uh, become saved. And it isn't repentance that saves me. It is my putting my faith in Jesus Christ that does that. But any genuine Faith in Jesus for salvation will always be marked by a repentant life. And because I think repentance is arguably the single most neglected word in American Christianity and the single most neglected doctrine in terms of Christianity and in the present 
reputation of the gospel in the United States of America that it can hardly be any wonder that we end up with the kind of statistics that we end up with that I quoted to you earlier uh, in, in the sermon. But the point isn't what do these, those who self-identify as Christians believe about these things. What matters is what does God believe about these things and has communicated openly a thousand different ways within His Word. His Word is clear. Number one, that salvation includes a work of grace that not only provides us with the forgiveness of sins but, and the confidence of, of heaven in the future, but also with the power to live a godly life now, which we are then commanded to live. And then second, that when we put our faith in Jesus for salvation, it is with the understanding that we are also making Him our Lord and that we are to repent of anything in our lives that is inconsistent with that Lordship uh, within our lives. And that anything else is a deception. And a deception that we can uh, least afford to be deceived related to in any, uh, more than anywhere else in life because it involves our uh, very etern uh, eternity and involves our salvation. Again, in, in, uh, and I know I've laid down a fair amount of doctrine in this sermon uh, this morning. I don't apologize for it, but, I, I, but the necessity as we read these statistics and as we see these kind of things uh, everywhere, the necessity of this being clear that the book of Jude is so vital for correcting what is present in the body of Christ in the United States of America presently in tsunami uh, uh, size in terms uh, of scope. And so it's a time for clarity on these issues. And as again, as I mentioned last week, I don't uh, head into Jude with the idea of kind of aiming at anyone or aiming certainly not at us as a church or accusing anyone, but mainly just to inoculate us against a very prevalent uh, deception concerning uh, Christianity. And I don't want you to fall for it. And the, one of the fascinating things about Jude is he writes this letter, and he gets into it a little bit later, he makes a distinction that's important to understand from the onset. He makes a distinction on how those who advance this doctrine and were teaching it among Christians, he makes a distinction between them and those who fall for the doctrine, believe the doctrine. The one, he says, lower the boom on them. Really let them have it for what it is they're, they're teaching and indoctrinating and defiling Christianity over. But he says the people that have been duped by them don't deal with them in the same way. Just expose the folly of the false teaching they've fallen for and then call them back into the genuine Christianity. And that's the call that 
that Jude makes here, even so early within the book, where any of us that we would sit here today and look and say, I don't know where I heard it. Maybe I heard it from the false teacher that exists in every one of our hearts and minds. I indoctrinated myself. I hardly needed any help. Or maybe it was the teaching of, of someone else. But then to stop and to realize I have fallen for something that is an error and I want to turn away from it now in recognizing uh, all uh, of that and to embrace, as I said, the Christianity of the Bible. Let me also add that there are no doubt many Christians who would hear a sermon like this about victorious Christian life and these kind of things and long for that. Excuse me. Did my cough give you the freedom to cough as well? We're all all in such a panic, aren't we? On the thing, God bless you. Good for you. Allergies, that's what I keep saying. But a lot of people, when we go through a passage like this, you say, you're describing a Christianity that I don't know. I don't know that kind of victory uh, in, in my life. What I would encourage you to do is to go online, go to our website, go to, uh, study it anywhere you like, but I would commend here, study the book of Romans. And go to the series that we did on a Sunday morning and go through the book of Romans from beginning to end. Uh, or at least go to Romans chapter 6 through 8 where he addresses this same, very same, uh, he addresses the issue of the victorious Christian life and where it's found. And it is very, very important. But I want you to know there's hope uh, for you, but sometimes we don't know who we are and what we have until we find out who we are and what we have biblically, and you will find that there. Uh, in those chapters in the Bible. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, then God loves you. He wants to forgive you of your sins, and He will be glad to do that today and uh, and begin a personal relationship with you as you would repent of your direction in life, your own self-will, your sin, and then turn to Him and say, I desperately want to be under new management I want to go to heaven one day. I want to cease the life that I'm living right now. I want to be freed from the guilt of my sin past. And he will be happy to bring all of that into your life today. There'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And we'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God. If you need prayer for anything this morning, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank You for the clarity of Your Word in the midst of um, a, a prominent and a very, very presently dominant false doctrine and understanding uh, of Your Word. And I pray and we pray for one another that You would use this to inoculate us against the great deception that is all around us so that we wouldn't be fooled by uh, some kind of ideas of men and women about how Christianity can be improved. We acknowledge that the Christianity that we want and the Christianity 
that we love and we enjoy is the one that our Savior purchased for us upon the cross and demonstrated to be true in His resurrection. Thank You so much, Lord, for the privilege of repentance. Thank You so much for Your grace, both in its forgiveness and in the power to live a different kind of life. And we thank You in the name of the One who has made all of it possible. In Jesus' name, Amen. Trinity, would you close us? God bless each of you today.